Welcome. You are listening to the Be A Better Being podcast hosted by Michelle Zellner and Sasha Bershide. Michelle and Sasha are here to give you information and inspiration to help you live your healthiest, happiest lives. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the show. Greetings. Thank you for tuning in to the Be A Better Being podcast. I'm Michelle Zellner, your host. And today I'm joined with somebody who I actually don't know very well, but he put a LinkedIn post up and it just like really screamed at me. And I reached out to him mainly to tell him how proud I was of that post, but also because I think he would have been an amazing guest on this show. And that is why Vinny Nuzo is here with me today. So welcome, Vinny. How are you? Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me and for the kind words. Like you said, it the post sometimes it's difficult to be vulnerable, right? But you do it and you help some people along the way. And here I am, like brought us two together. Yeah. And we got to have a little conversation about a month and a half ago or so just to, you know, kind of get to know each other and what we're going to talk about. And I know we could have many episodes just on you, but I let's, let's start out with what that post was about. And then we'll dive into some of the things that kind of brought you there and, and brought you to where you are now. Yeah. So, I, you know, it's really a concept that I really struggled with for a while is just being vulnerable about my past and some of the things and choices I've made, but ultimately it boils down to not everybody that looks healthy or fit is actually healthy. And for me, it was the use of steroids in my past that really, you know, it speaks to what people are willing to do to look fit and they actually sacrifice health along the way. And certainly it's not steroids is, is the only thing is eating disorders and other drugs and things that people use to look a certain way that makes them, I guess, feel better, but really health is lacking, you know? So that post was really about me opening up and jumping out there with my history and my sort of testimony around that that scenario. It's been a long road for me to be actually able to speak out you know, openly about that, because typically you hide those things from people about what you've done, you know, especially in this industry, you know, so I thought how many young people, I guess not just young people, but how many people are really distracted and diverted by influencers, you know, and that really is what I have a small voice, right? In, in, a, in a large arena of social media, but I, whoever I could reach, I want them to know that that's not the answer, you know, that you want to do it the right way. And, and thankfully for my scenario, it didn't really end tragically. I had some health complications that I was able to bounce back from, but there are plenty of people where life gets a lot more worse and things get a lot more dangerous, you know, so really just pull the curtain behind a lot of these influencers out there that are kind of leading people in the wrong direction. Well, and I think to your point, it's like you said, it's not just steroids. It's, it's a lot of things that we do to try to achieve a certain kind of outcome, whatever that might be, whether it's how we look or how society perceives us. And I'm going to put extreme exercise in that category as well, right? It's, it's under the veil of being really, really healthy. And I'm not saying that people who are doing extreme types of events are not healthy, but a lot of times it is at a great expense of their actual well-being because a human was not designed to do extreme things consistently. 
Yeah. So that's really where Stress Undone was sort of born out of because what a revelation for me was the understanding that exercise is nothing more than a physical stressor that we do chronically. And if it's not calibrated right or it's not appropriate, we will end up with more harmful side effects than we do positive. And extreme exercise is, you know, that's where I was brought up in, right? No pain, no gain. And you just go hard. You you outwork the person next to you. And that's how you're going to, you know, there's no room for, for rest and, and recovery or anything like that. But understanding that the body is a living organism and it's affected drastically by high bouts of stress, exercise being one of them. And we kind of get away with it in our youth. You know, our body's a little bit more resilient. We recover faster. And there's plenty of times where we can, there's a little bit of that buffer, you know, in our early 20s and stuff. But uh, yeah, exercise done extremely will absolutely do more harm than it does good. And we're just told, either we believe that we're the, we just did something wrong, right? The injury is our fault or the burnout, right? Or the allostatic overload or wait, it's just our fault. We did something wrong. But really the truth is we're working this thing way too hard. <laughs> yeah. And I want to get into what you're doing currently with Stress Undone. But before we do that, we got to go back. We got to we gotta go through like the story of Vinny, where yeah. you're from, how you grew up, what yeah. got you into using steroids in the first yeah. place and then how you got out of that. Let's dive yeah. into that story. Absolutely. So I I grew up in a, in a rough neighborhood. That really was the crux of where that mentality came from of out hustle, out work, you know, the next person. And really, if you want to make it, you know, which I hate even using these terms, you know, because that's just no indication of success, money and, and things are no indication. But that's really where that was born out of. Those are those are deep rooted identity issues where you're growing up in poverty. And I, I want to be clear that that's first world poverty. I always like to say that, right? Because even poverty in America is way different than poverty in, in other countries. So I grew up where you you had to work hard. I played football. That was where lifting really came into play because I was a small guy. I'm a twin. I have a twin brother and he was a little huskier than me. We we did everything together. So we started lifting weights early. My, my father is a painter and he had a customer that was throwing out an old, one of those old universal sparkly red bench with the weight thing, you know, I remember end. that. <laughs> you know, so we, we had that in the basement with the old weights, the cement weights wrapped in plastic, you know, and that's where it all started. And, and we really got into it and our personality really kicked in and that personality trait really being addiction or obsessiveness. And that's where it started. So my father is a recovered heroin addict. My grandfather gambling. So my parents always made me very aware of what was in our blood, so to speak, you know, and even with good things and healthy things, they would just say, Hey, like they would point it out. Like, do you, you see how you're being about that? You know, could you imagine if it was drugs? So they really harped on that because of my father's past. Little did I know at that time was the seed of addiction in health and and that my personality kicked in and I went always all or nothing. I was always all or nothing, you know? And so started weight training at 12 years old, 
you know, in the basement. And it was really for power. At that point, it was for power, it was for football. And then we stopped playing football in high school. And what were we going to apply our next, that the addiction to next? And it was bodybuilding. <laughs> you know, that's what happened. So we were already in the gym and we were we were bigger. We were big for our age, you know, so we got a lot of attention from some of the older guys in the gym. Like, man, you guys are well on your way. And, you know, and, and that's really where then the introduction to steroids came, where I was getting into bodybuilding and I was entertaining steroids for the first time. And an older gentleman, right, who you believe is a friend, you know. So, yeah, so I did three cycles between the ages of 20 and 22. And to give you an idea of my obsessiveness, my, maybe this doesn't land. I don't, I'm not sure what your background, what your knowledge is on steroids, but I started very small with a half a CC of DECA, you know, which is really nothing, you know, every other week. And then I ended up doing 1800 milligrams of testosterone a week by the time I got to my third cycle which again, all was inside of 18 months to two years. And I actually didn't compete on steroids. I, once I got off my last, my last cycle, my hormone levels shut down completely. And I went to the doctor and she did some blood work and got me on a hormone replacement therapy and to get me back on track, which I needed for 18 months. And I would get checked every in the beginning it was every month and every three months until I was able to just get off and never thankfully ever touch it again, which was a little over 15 years now. So I did compete a couple of times and I did well, and I actually wasn't on steroids at the time, you know, so, and they do say everything, which I believe that you have gained from the chemical you lose, you know, except for the side effects, of course. So thankfully I've been within normal ranges ever since. And I've never needed to or wanted or had the desire to. But what I was left with and what the residual was of that is depression. So I struggle a great deal with that. And at the time, you know, I was in my early 20s and I was an athlete when I was younger. I never touched drugs. I never did anything. But then in, you know, in come the early 20s and I started smoking marijuana. So at the same time that I was sort of running through these chemical issues with steroids, I was playing around with marijuana. And then I became a heavy smoker in my early 20s to the point where I was smoking an ounce a week, which for a lot of people, that's, that's a lot. That's a great deal. You know, so I really lost the ability to cope. You know, it was no, it wasn't it started recreational, right? But then it wasn't that. It was when I was sad, when I was happy, when I was angry, when I was, it just became literally the thing that, you know, kept me going. And so it be, it brought about those two things really did a number on me. And I didn't realize it so much until the pandemic, because I was, I brought my addiction from one thing to the next and I became a workaholic. I got married at 26 and I had two boys. I have two boys, eight and six years old. And I really just, again, coming from poverty, when I met my wife, I met my wife in church actually. And once I realized I wanted to propose, I was like, I have no money, <laughs> you know? 
So from that moment on, I just started working like a maniac. And thankfully we, we bought our first home right away. And, and then our second, a few years after, and I really just went from one thing to the next. I, I excelled in the corporate world and in, in, in fitness and corporate fitness. And then the pandemic hit and I was for the first time in a long time with myself you know, and realizing a lot of the damage, I guess, that was done from the prior lifestyle. And being a workaholic brought about a lot of guilt for me because I didn't spend a lot of time at home, you know, and I grew up, like I said, in poverty where I used to pray. I used to pray for poverty because I knew how much closeness it brought to a family. You know, so here I am now having, I never aspired to be anything. It's not like I grew up and I was like, I want to be a basketball player. I want to be a police officer. I just wanted to be a husband and a father. I didn't care how I provided. I want, I wanted to do something with people. Fitness just happened to be an area that I excelled at, you know, in college and stuff. So I just, and here I was a husband and a father, never home with my wife and children. (laughs) And that brought about a lot of problems, right? Family problems, marital problems, and the pandemic hit. And that was a major, major reset for me. Like, like a lot of people, you know, a couple of months prior to the pandemic, the shutdown, my aunt passed away from pancreatic cancer. So at 61, which is very aggressive cancer. And my uncle just retired from the police force and they're like getting ready to enjoy their, their golden years. And to me, it was just like, whoa, like how many people does this happen to where you sacrifice 40 years to maybe enjoy 10 or 20 and your health is shattered, you know? So I had the opportunity. It was very difficult, but a lot of conversations with my wife and just readjusting the dream and the plan and just saying, is this like, is this really what we want? You know, at any moment, you know, you get one phone call, one diagnosis, and your whole life is flipped upside down. So I said, if if I have to work like crazy when my children are in college, then fine. But these years, I want to enjoy the journey. I want to enjoy the ride. And I want to be around, you know? Well, I mean, I think you made a great choice. I'm yes. guessing <laughs> you and your wife and your kids probably think yes. that as well. Before yeah, we really dive into what that reset looked like, yeah. Uh, let's go back to college, being a twin, your family dynamics. Like, sure. You know, was depression something you probably always struggled with, but really didn't know it until later? You know, talk a little bit about that, because I think especially for men, young yeah. men, right? This yeah. is something we're getting better about talking about. Yeah. But we still need to talk more about it and to hear it come from somebody who is open to sharing that, I think, is a really powerful message. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I didn't really realize depression. The first time I really became aware and and questioned it for the first time, I was probably around 18 or 19 when the winters would hit and I would really lose ambition and energy and just feel like not doing anything, you know? So that was the first time that I kind of was like, hmm, I guess I have seasonal affective, you know, depression disorder. I would just call it disorder. I, didn't, I would never use the word, you know, depression. I grew up, 
you know, traditional Italian New York family where men really didn't. But thankfully, my father was not like that. You know, his father was like that. Very aggressive, very aggressive is the wrong word. A tyrant and abusive (laughs) is what my grandfather was and is. So they didn't have a relationship actually for over a decade. They didn't, they didn't speak when I was a young boy. So my father went the other way. So he broke cycles. Absolutely. And I grew up with a lot of love and affection. I still hug and kiss my father to these, to this day, always a lot of love and affection. He went the, he went the opposite direction, but my father, because you got I'm guessing maybe your father started to turn to drugs maybe in part because of that lack of affection. Oh, not in part. A hundred percent. My grandfather was emotionally, verbally, physically abusive to where almost like brain damage, abusive, physical abuse to, to with my father. My father has three sisters, no brothers. So who got the beatings? It was my father and my grandmother. Those two really got the beatings. It, it was really because my grandfather had to work four jobs. He's an Italian immigrant. And the reason why he had to work four jobs is because he had a gambling problem. So he resented his family, but really he was his own problem. And, you know, so that is really where my father was out on the streets, homeless, pretty much at 14 years old, living in park benches or trying to sleep in the backseat of somebody's car if the door was unlocked back in those days, you know, and then and then get out before the sun came up. So yeah, he he ended up getting wrapped up very, very early with heavy drugs. And if you know anything about the onset of drug use and abuse, you pretty much stop developing emotionally. So my father then, he finally cleaned himself up later, not until I was a baby. So I was born in Arizona, actually, in, in Scottsdale. They grew up in New York, but when my mother was pregnant with me and my twin, They moved to Arizona to get my father away from his surroundings, but that didn't, that don't matter. You find it, you know, you have to change, you know? So very quickly, he got mixed up with the Mexican mafia over there and got his hands on heroin very quickly. (laughs) So they split up actually when I was born, because my mother was like, no way, like kids are born, this is it, you know? So my father actually came back to New York to start his own life, but it haunted him because he used to, when he was in the streets, really struggling with drugs, he would just pray for to have one son that he could treat better than his father treated him. And he felt like I could kick these drugs and he got three sons. So he cleaned himself up in, in a rehab here in New York and then went back to Arizona. They got back together. We moved back to New York and then they got married when I was about four or five years old. So I grew up where my dad, from that point, he became a workaholic, right? You have to do something, you know, you have to stay busy. And so thankfully, you know, cause we were, we were poor. I was on welfare till I was 10 years old, standing online at church for the box of cheese and clothes, you know? So my father would work from morning till night. And, and I didn't realize my father's how could you, you know, you're a child, right? But I didn't realize my father's inability and struggles emotionally like that emotional damage until I became a man where I could see he's really stopped developing emotionally and he struggles big time with insecurities and just feeling love. And it's, it's very, very deep. And because he's 
never sought therapy. He just, you know, or anything like that. He, he still today to this day struggles greatly with, with those kinds of things. And I know that a lot of the behaviors and words and things that he would say, then they were affecting me. I just didn't realize it. You know, you, you don't, you really don't realize how much of your parents are in you, you know, until you get older, you have your own family, your own child. And then if you're, if you're aware enough, you will absolutely pick up on how much you are like them. And I know that my father is absolutely depressed. He struggles with anxiety. So that's for me growing up, mine, they did such a good job at hiding the struggle and the, and the trauma. They did such a good job. They were really, they're just trying to make it through the next day. It was really like, can we just make it through the next day? And I didn't realize, you know, we're just having fun. And, and, and for me, I did well at a lot of things without trying too hard. And I think it was a blessing. And at later it became a curse because I didn't realize how much I needed to do well, to feel well, you know, but I excelled in, in school. I excelled as, as a football player being a twin, I got a lot of attention from the ladies growing up and, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes. And, and so that, that became, I got lost in that, you know, how self-centered are we at, at, as a teenager that really carried with me into my early twenties. It became such a major part of my identity, the, the accolades and the acknowledgement that really was who I was and how I got by without feeling depressed because I didn't really there weren't too many depressing things happening. My younger brother, he grew up very much in our shadow. And I didn't realize that in, until we got older. So when he was younger, he, he went through these different identity transitions, whether it was with music or where he was really just trying to find himself, you know, in different ways. And I didn't realize the the beacon of courage that he would be for me as I got older, you know, because he went, he went ahead of us in emotional development. Absolutely. So he became such an inspiration for me going through some of the things, not that he knows that necessarily. Right. Well, he but does now. He will. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I want to, I want to touch on, you know, the accolades and how that carried you through, you know, just for anybody listening to understand that whenever we have a void in our life, and then something seems to fill that void. That is what we're going to gravitate to. Your your dad broke that generational cycle of abuse, which is amazing. But because he didn't have the tools himself to be able to understand emotions and go through his own healing process, he yeah. can't then express love. And you now, because we're in a very different time of life and you know different things that we have available, and because you are clearly a very evolved human who's willing to do some hard work and be reflective. Now you get to continue that cycle in a way, different way where now you can show your kids love. And I think it's a really kind of beautiful journey. I mean, it started from something incredibly tragic and I'm going to yeah. say your grandfather, right? Why did, why is he in such distress? Well, clearly yeah. things in his life. Absolutely. Right. So it, this is all these generational things and the way it stops is because somebody decides to do some really, really, really hard work. 
That's it. That's really what it comes down to. As much of the hard work as they are capable of, as they have the desire to do, as they have the tools and resources and support to do. And then it's up to the next generation to continue that hard work so that it just, it just continues to get better and better. And that's the, I guess, where I sort of pick, grab the baton, you know, from, from my dad, because you know, to be honest, I don't know that I could have done what he did if I was in his same situation, you know, where there is no support. He did like, I have him for a dad, which is awesome. He had, I didn't have his dad for a dad, you know what I mean? So I, I don't know that I would have been able to, to do what he did, but whatever was in his ability, whatever he could muster up. And I don't have to struggle with poverty the way he did, you know, and the way they did, you know, I don't have... I only played around or or got mixed up with marijuana and not other things that affected, you know, and I didn't deal or get involved with marijuana until I was 21. You know, he was doing hard drugs as a teenager. Yeah. So, you know, it, I can't, it's just a tremendous feat for him, but that's really where I picked up the baton to say, like you said, hard work needs to be done because, and there was a void it's just that I never knew there was a void right. because so much was going my way. You know, so many things were, were, were going my way. Not that I didn't have some small bouts or seasons of struggle, but there are some people, this is why we have to live with compassion, where there is, they go years or decades without getting a break in life, you know, where there's not, where nothing goes their way. And you wonder how somebody at the age of 22, I look at what happened in Colorado at, at the, at the, the club, the nightclub, the gate bar. They, I think, man, how does a 22 year old feel so hopeless, whether they're filled with hate or whatever it is, but how do you, you definitely don't value your life where at the age of 22, this is the thing that you're entertaining and that you're doing. And then I, I then I, my mind, like you said, and you go to compassion for my grandfather, it's a little more difficult for me to have, but I do. At the end of the day, there's people in the world who never experience love, affection, or get a break, you know? So for me, those accolades and those accomplishments carried me and sort of created that buffer and I was enjoying life in all the ways that I shouldn't, you know what I mean? In those, in those days and at, at those ages and doing well in work and that identity was constant, constant, you know, trophy or, you know, winning the trip or a vacation or getting recognition. The second you walk into a gym, there's thousands of people coming in and out a day and it's like, oh, that's, you know, Vinny, he's, you know, the best trainer, he's the number one trainer. And, you know, so it was literally nonstop, you know, dopamine from, from people, you know, dopamine releases. And then the pandemic hit, right? And like I said, and all of that stopped, all of that stopped. And the places or the, the places that really mattered, my wife and my children, what kind of work did I do to get or deserve any type of acknowledgement and accolades. Thank God my wife is the woman she is and thank God children are very resilient. But that for me was huge. And like you said, for, for young men going through these things, 
it's hard, depending, I guess, on how you grew up. But for me, and I'm sure a lot of men, young men can relate, when you become a husband and a father, the burden to provide and protect is is crushing. It's it's so crushing. You just feel, and 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 now I I was in this place where you know you want the best for your kids. You want to give them a life better than you had, and all these things that sometimes we're just programmed. Uh, and you look, you read all these stories. Look at Steve Jobs on his deathbed. Look at all of these people. Every single one leaves the earth with a warning. Don't do what I did. You know, every single one leaves it. And I said, man, like it is very difficult to go against the tide. It is very difficult to say, I'm not going to chase the dollar, you know, and give up on the accolades. And it is very very difficult to make those decisions. And I was always a person who had some foresight, thankfully. And I just could see the amount of regret that I that I would have. I'll tell you, when my when my oldest son was three, we had bought our second home. My youngest son was a baby. I came home from work at eight o'clock and I was j- just in time to to tuck him in. And my oldest son is very cerebral. He's very intelligent. He's very inquisitive. And he just says, hey, daddy, you forgot to play with me. And I was like, no, I didn't forget. I I was working. I just got home. And then he says this. He says, well, how are you ever going to play with me if you're always at work? And I was just like, oh, my gosh. I just wanted to melt into the floor. And from that moment, I was like, man, like I need to stop. You know, I need to slow down. There's so much pressure from work. There's so much pressure from clients to continue to right now you built this client base. I'm working 14 clients a day, six days a week. They depending on you, they're relying on you. Their life is, you know, impacted. Thankfully, my wife is very, she's a big believer in the work I do. And she's like, you gotta, you gotta keep going. You've been working so hard. And then I was in a car accident, coming home late from 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 work, and I was falling asleep behind the wheel. And then there was another warning where I was like, man, I really have to stop working so much. And I went, I pushed one more year, and then the pandemic hit. So I, I feel like it was such a blessing in disguise, but it is very difficult. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I w- I'd like to give myself the credit to say that even if the pandemic hit, I would have made the choice. But I don't know that I would have been able to see the cost, you know, being home during the pandemic. I could see the cost of being absent from the home. I could see the benefit of being present in the home. And I could see how my boys needed me. And really, you know, my boys, they're they're tremendous. They are very, very well behaved. They're the sweetest things. They're still boys. They'll give my wife a hard time sometimes, you know? So I became the just this voice of reprimand. You know, whenever daddy was around, he was just telling, you know, stop it. Why are you giving mommy a hard time? You got to, because I'm working so much. Your patients are down to nothing. You got nothing left, especially doing the work where like we do one-on-one. You're engaged with person after person. There is a fresh set of eyes on you every hour on the hour. And I had a 90 minute commute each way, you know, so I'm, I'm exhausted and I have, all I could do is just say, stop what you're doing. You know, that's all I had the energy for. And I thought, 
they need to see more of me other than this person who's trying to, you know, get them in line all the time. You have so much more to give them, you know? And then it was really all those things start setting in, right? Like what is, what, is, what good is it if I can leave them a little bit of money? First of all, most people work their lives. They don't have too much money to give their kids anyways, right? And then if I could give them that, but they don't have what's in here and in here, what good is it, you know? So for me growing up, thankfully, I painted a lot with my father as a kid. At 10 years old, summers and weekends, I worked, you know? So we would be in a room for six, eight hours. And we would talk about life and love and relationships. And that was our bonding time. For me, I, I don't have that with my boys. I would, I would tuck them in Sunday night and I wouldn't see them again till Saturday afternoon. I was just like, this is not sustainable. It's not good. It's not healthy. And none of it is worth it. So for me, the pandemic really allowed me to see and really take in the cost of being absent, you know? Well, and I would say, too, the other thing that you were modeling for your boys is that this is what men do. They are absent from the home. Right. I mean, you were working, but still absent from the home. Yep. And, you know, they this and clearly we should all do the best we can to strive to provide for our families what we need. That's and right. I'm not going to sit here and say, everybody, quit your job and just stay home. Right, right. <laughs> The government will take care of you. Yeah, yeah. Nonprofits yeah. will take yeah. care. No, 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 no. Your job as a contributing member of society. That's right. Is to strive to be able to provide your family that you have what it needs, and then it's about determining. Okay, how much more am I willing to sacrifice to get what? And, that and is, yeah, that is where the hard choice makes it comes to be made. And I will. I don't know what your other version of you would have done had there not been a pandemic, but I know with all the people I work with, because they hit pandemic well beyond the age that you did, you probably would have just kept going. I don't right? see, you don't see an end in sight, you know, right. especially in certain industries and, and in certain, you know, just take corporate as a whole where you are working hard to climb the ladder and earn your stripes and, you know, there's like five really good positions out of the thousands of the workers, you know. So, yeah, I don't see how there would have been a way out. That was just a perfect, a perfect exit, you know. Yeah. And it's difficult for the for young men. I don't I don't know. And you see the change. I'm sure. Look, people, you know, that are 20, 30 years my senior, they're like, OK, I'm done. You know, how does how does a young person reprioritize, you know, and just, and it just comes back to really, and I'll say it over and over again is it's so advantageous to be able to disconnect from the world. If you cannot pluck yourself out of the rat race and all the pressures there, you lose yourself. And I had to go back to being young and just really like, what is it that I want? And just time and just seeing that your time here is limited you and, and look, nothing's promised that you're going to live to the average age of 78, right? That's what my aunt taught me. And not only that, growing up in a rough neighborhood, I had a lot of friends in, that were dead young, you know, from drug overdoses and drunk driving car accidents. And there's nothing saying that you have any time promised, you know? So, and then I think I'm 37, I'm going to be 38 soon. Then I, I saw, I'm like, okay, I'm about halfway there. 
how fast did this half go? The next half is going to go a lot faster. It does. You know, so it it, it is difficult for young people, not just young men to say, what do I want and and how bad do I want it? What am I willing to give up for it? I think there is wisdom in trying to be efficient with your time early on and do a couple of the right things, thankfully, right? I've made a couple of the right investments, a couple of bad ones also, but, you know, and do the best you can to try to get a, a leg up, especially if your situation is, is difficult. And then I think as soon as possible, rebalance out your life as soon as possible, because if it doesn't cost you, let, let's say you don't have a family, right? Maybe you're not married with children. It will cost you in your health. You know, it will absolutely at some point cost you in your health. And so many times people, they have a lot of, most of my clientele is between 55 and 85, you know, where they did all that, you know, their work and now they're suffering and they really just wish, man, I wish I could just get my life back and get my movement back and get my my youth back. And sometimes it goes too far, you know, and you, you, there's just nothing you could do about it, you know? Yeah. And it goes right to my motto, hard now or harder later. That's, that's right. And hard now is always better. Hard okay. now. I say right now at this moment, you are both the oldest you've ever been and the youngest you'll ever be. So, so right now, you know, I, I experienced a ton of injuries in my early twenties, part of the steroid abuse, you know, it weakens joints and I was training like a maniac. And there was a period of time between 24 and 26, right after I had come off the steroids a year or two after being off the steroids at 22, uh, I, every three to six months, I was either on crutches or in a sling. You know, and it really hit me like, how number one, how am I going to keep doing this as a hobby and a profession? And number two, thankfully, that happened in my 20s because most of the time people experience that when they're older, their body's not as resilient and it's so much more difficult. You know, that you, you hear it all the time, they have a slip and fall. And that's it. It was downhill for that for that person. Ever since then, they broke a hip, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, so for me, I was so grateful. It was very humbling, right? Because at that age, I, all I wanted to do was, you know, be on top of the world and feel invincible. I was so grateful to say, man, these injuries happen now. And it's given me the opportunity to reassess what I was just thinking isn't. Here's what we're taught, right? Just go and do something. Just go and do exercise, right? Just And I was really sitting there evaluating, like, isn't exercise supposed to be good for you? Why am I falling apart? Like, what's happening? And obviously, there was a misinterpretation on my end in, in what exercise is and, and could do for you. And most of the time, we just traditionally, we didn't care and we just kept going and it was... But no, these aren't just regular bumps and bruises. These are these are major injuries that'll change your entire life, you know? Yeah, it's one of the reasons I will often encourage the younger generations, you know, what I call the YBI, the young, beautiful, and invincible, to realize that just because you don't feel like you're causing yourself harm doesn't mean you're not causing yourself harm. It's going to show up at some point. But that is a really hard concept to wrap your head around. Really, you know, really hard. I've spoken to thousands of clients and every time I get in front of a young person, the only advantage, I, if, if I if I could speak to a peer, you know, is just say, hey, 
I I went through it already. You didn't get injured yet, but I promise <laughs> it's not going to be the barbell that breaks. It's going to be your knee or your back, you know? Right, right. So let's let's transition into this new thing that you're doing with Stress Undone, because I definitely, I want to touch on that and get into what you're doing and how you can help people undo the damage that has been done. And that's the good news, right? We're humans. We're very yes. resilient. Yes. But you first have to stop causing harm. That's number one. Yeah. And that's that's a good analogy. It's a good point. What I tell people is if if you're being burned by something, you can't start begin to heal that skin until you remove the heat source, right? It just makes sense. But like you said, especially with the younger people, it's very difficult to slow down and fully understand that sometimes less is more and you have to play the long game. Uh, uh, and often, often, very few people learn the easy way. You know, most of us learn the hard way. Look, and I'm no different. I learned the hard way through and through, yep. hard-nosed injury. It wasn't the first injury that I learned. It was like the sixth one or seventh one where I was like, whoa. The first time I, I, I was actually entertaining surgery is when I was like, oh my gosh, like it was my rotator cuff, my I had 40% tear, labral tear and 20% rotator cuff. And I was, I couldn't wash my hair, you know? And then I realized how strong are you? I had all these muscles, you know, but I couldn't raise a, a brush or my hand, you know? So it really is the sooner, the better. That's what I tell people. Like, I would just say the sooner you could begin to adopt this preservation mindset, the better off you're going to be. And because the truth is you can have all these gains until you reach this peak in your life, you know, your, your twenties after a certain point, it's just all of, all about slowing down the rate of decay, you know? So that means you need to recalibrate, you, you know, everything of what you're doing. So that's why a lot of my clientele was older because they had the ear to hear me. They were like, oh, you're saying exactly what I what I what I need to hear because they need exercise. They want exercise, but exercise in and of itself is a threat. And that's where I would I would come in. And the niche that I was really in is somebody who had trauma, physical therapy that failed them or it's over. And now what? Or they went down the rabbit hole of pain medicine and surgery after surgery, not one knee surgery, but five knee surgeries, right? And they're like, what do I do now? Like what, what's happening? And they're getting really desperate. And that's unfortunately where a lot of people need to be. They need to be humbled and nothing humbles you more than an injury, right? A serious injury Yeah. in order to be able to be receptive to, to the kind of work that I do, you know? Yeah. So we're out of pandemic. Are you working with people in person? Are you doing virtual? Do you also do any kind of coaching? Because we know not everything is corrected through different kinds of movement. There is, I mean, a lot of it is attitude and mindset coaching and nutrition and it's stress management, right? It's all of those things. So tell, before we officially wrap up, tell a little bit yeah. about exactly how you work with people. Yeah. So I never really thought of myself as a mindset coach. It was very you are every single coach, every single good coach and every single good trainer is absolutely that they have to embody that as well. But really the, it started with mitigating structural stress where I dealt with trauma, spinal stenosis, C-sections, joint replacement, scar tissue. For instance, 
I have a lot of clients where if they had open heart surgery and now the surgery went well and they need to do cardio homework from their cardiologist, but they have a bum knee. And that's a great picture of what a lot of people will be like, because if you have structural injuries, you can't fight for your life as you get older. You can't fight to diabetes. You can't fight to lose weight if you have joint issues. So that's really where it all began. And then when I began to see that there are other sources of stress, that it's not just structural stress, but nutritional stress and psychological stress where we are as a human species, no one lives in stress like we do. No, no species lives in stress like we do. And, but like other species, we weren't made to, we were made to uh, capitalize on short bouts of acute stress, not live in chronic stress. And, you know, that's where some of the mindset coaching comes in as far as you have to reevaluate the things that you allow yourself to get stressed about. And that's where some of the, the, the emotional work comes from. But really, I address three pillars of stress, which is nutritional stress, psychological and structural. And I'm doing that one on one and virtual. And I'm working on building a program to where people could just have access to that all the time and go through the course on their own. But it's about mitigating chronic inflammation. And the only way you do that is addressing chronic stress. And those are the three pillars that I've found most stress falls under, you know, so and 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 at the cellular level, the body doesn't know the difference, you know, stress is just stress, it's either aiding development, or it's deconstructing, you know, it's, it's tearing the body down. So it's about optimizing those things and really taking a look using data, right. And using whatever fit technology you can. HRV is a huge thing. It's, it's our North star, you know, heart rate variance, as far as knowing whether or not to train hard that day. And if you can just begin to say, what days can I train hard and what should I be doing on those days? And the days that I can't train hard, you know, we say when you can't work out, work in, you know, and that's when you're doing things that are regenerative and restorative in nature and, and rebuilding, you know, filling up the gas tank. And it's more than it's more than just HRV because you can have a great HRV, but have a knee injury. So that the things that prevent you from training hard that day are HRV being off a structural issue or acute digestive issue. And those are the things that you're going to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to work in this day. And, and that's, what's going to give you longevity. That's going to, in the long run, right? You got to, inflammation didn't come overnight and it's not going to go away overnight, but that's when you're beginning to establish health and set yourself up for success. Because a lot of people try to get fit on top of unhealthy circumstances and they, they put the car before the horse and it never, it never ends up well. Yep. Well, Vinny, I feel like we could go on talking for hours about this. You are fascinating. You are a wealth of information. I love your approach. You. If you can't work out, work in. Yes. That is a soundbite right there. I yeah. love it. Thank yeah. you. How can people find you? We'll put all of this in the show notes, but give yeah. a little shout out here now. Yeah, absolutely. So you can, the website is stressundone.com. I've been writing a blog now. I started writing a blog, right? Reading is something that I've always been an advocate of. 
never writing, but reading is a major part of being a good writer. So I'm, I'm stepping into that. And of course, on Instagram at Mrs. Stress Undone and on LinkedIn at just linkedin.com slash Vinny Nuzo. And those are the two platforms that I'm most active on at the moment. I love it. And your content is great. So I encourage Thank everybody you. to follow it. This has been a really great conversation. I really appreciate you coming on. And I have, a feeling we're gonna, I have a feeling we're going to have you back because there is so much more to explore with you. I'm excited. I'm excited. It's been really great. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Everybody, I mean, this was a lot and it kind of covered a lot of different topics. I bet there's something that Vinny said that is sparking your interest or it's making, maybe making you take a pause, which is good. Whichever it is, you know that you get to take it and go and be a better being. Thank you for listening to the Be A Better Being podcast. Michelle and Sasha hope that what you heard today inspires you to embrace this journey of life with an open mind, a kind heart, and a willingness to learn and evolve. If you enjoyed the content, please help spread their message by subscribing, sharing, and leaving a five-star review. If you have a show topic idea or would like to be a guest, please visit betterbeings.net and fill out a contact form. Until next time, go and be a better being.